Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Happy everybody. So thankful you're here. I'm on. Ha ha ha. Happy New Year, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to church. Good way to start the new year. You're, you're the, you guys get the gold star. Day one, you're here at church, right? This is good stuff. Every year, uh, just about, I've been pretty consistent. I've done a, a, a one-off in this series we've called Resolved. And uh, some of you have seen this before. That means you've been on the journey with us for a while. Uh, around this time of year, I do a, a one-off. And this year, I've, I've entitled our sermon this morning, A New Thing. Surprising to me, I'd never preached this passage. It's one I've thought of many times when I think about the new year and what God's up to. And it's in Isaiah 43. That's where we're going to spend some time today. And uh, this is a unique piece of scripture, but I think the Lord is really, he's working on my heart with it. And I hope that he'll shape you with it today too, because the goal of this sermon series that we've been doing year after year to start the year is that we would worship and follow Christ more closely, that we would start our year thinking about the things that matter and the things that are most important, and that as a church and as individual believers, we would get really serious about our, our faith walk with Christ Jesus. And that's the point, that there's, there's a lot of other things that take up our time, there's a lot of other things that matter, and I bet maybe for some of you, you're thinking about some things you want to do better this year. Maybe you're Maybe you're not the resolution type, maybe you're not trying to get into all that, but maybe you're thinking just a couple of simple things like, maybe I get up a little earlier this year, maybe I start my day a different way, I'd like to kind of break some bad habits. Most of us think this way uh, throughout the year, uh, but this, for whatever reason, when we start the year is kind of an, an opportunity for us to, to reevaluate and go, okay, I want this year to look different, and whatever that means to you. But, but I, I want to encourage you this morning that the thing that matters most, the thing that we should shift the most is to know God and to worship Him more closely. That every day we're more and more like Christ Jesus. And what would that look like to have a life that really is shaped that way? And that's what I'm hopeful for today as God is, I believe, doing a new thing. I think God is cons constantly, consistently doing something new. I don't think he has stopped doing new things. I don't think miracles are over. I don't, when I read scripture, I see a lot of wonders and amazing things. But at the same time, I know he's not done. And that he's still doing these wonderful things. And that the scripture today is really an opportunity for me to open up my eyes and go, Okay, God, what are you doing in my life? And where am I hindering your work? And what can I do to be better equipped to do what you've called me to do. I would argue from, from a lot of different positions, a lot of different scriptures that Christ and God are doing new things. Look at this, one of my favorite scriptures, Christ making us new, first of all, in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we know at the end of things, John the Apostle saw this, that God is making all things new. Revelation 21, it says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God is in the business of new. Bringing newness of life to us. Doing new things that are amazing in our life. 
Sometimes giving us opportunities that seem difficult, but in their newness, God is at work. And those are the kinds of things that I want to wrestle with with you today. I don't know what kind of year you had. Perhaps, perhaps it was a really great year for some of you. It was a great year. You experienced financial freedom or, or some growth in a relationship. Maybe you got engaged or you started dating someone that seems like the right one. Or, or you restored some relationship in your life that had been broken. Maybe it was a really great year. You, you took a new career path and it seems like it's going to pan out. But at the same time, a lot of us in the room have had an extremely difficult year. Maybe you lost a loved one this year. You lost a job. Your, your health's deteriorating perhaps. Your bank account has gone dry. A lot of us are struggling with some good, some bad. Some of us had great years. Some of us didn't. Or perhaps for you, you're thinking, well, honestly, it was just another year. Just another, all right, I, I'm one year older. And it was kind of dull and not much happened. Regardless of where you've been, the encouragement to you remains the same today. That our God is doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing. Whether the past has been good, bad, indifferent, our God is doing a new thing. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that? See it with your very own eyes, the magnificent works of God that He's already doing in your life if you could just perceive it. In the book of Isaiah where we are today, God spoke to His people. This is one of the places where it says, Thus says the Lord. And He speaks to His people, encourages, encourages them that He is doing, was doing a new thing. And this new thing would be a, a way through the wilderness. It would be a provision in their greatest need. We too can be encouraged this way. That God is bringing newness of life. I want you to see, and I hope you'll see, that the text gives three really clear reasons to be encouraged by a God who brings newness of life. Let's read together. Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21. Wonderful passage. Here we go. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Wow, there's some interesting things going on in this passage. And I believe it should be a great encouragement to us as we start this year. The, the, first, the first reason I see that we should be encouraged by, by God who brings newness of life is that God redefines our past. He redefines our past. Now, I have a habit. I'll let you see under the hood for just a moment. I have a habit in my preaching of not giving you a negative application point. And God gives us a negative point here. In verse, if you look at, at verse, it's verse 18, he says, Remember not and consider not. Now, what, why would he be doing that? As I wrestled with that this week, I was thinking, well, God wants to change up the order. He wants us to change the way we think about our past. And in fact, God wants to redefine it. It's not that he goes back and, and changes the details, but he, he helps us to see those details in the way he sees them. 
And so he redefines the past. This is how this verse starts. Verse 16, this passage starts with, Thus says the Lord. The Lord here is His, his magnificent name, Yahweh here. This is a holy name, the eternal powerful God. He's saying, listen up. If I, if I wrote a letter and, and put my name on it, I'd probably put like lead pastor underneath. And, but my, my credentials here are, are nothing in comparison. His, his reads, and look at, what, look at his description. It's like when you would sign an email, you might put your number and your role in these things. He does something similar, but I like his a whole lot more than mine. Thus says the Lord, the, the way maker... <laughs> The ocean mover, the army bringer, the army destroyer. This is quite like his cred is awesome here. This is the God of the universe. And here's what he says. Remember not. Remember not. When I first read this passage, I was thinking this is an odd thing for him to say. Because there are so many other places in scripture where God says, remember in fact, the Lord's Supper itself is one of those things we mention every week where Christ says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Just before the passages in Isaiah and the hundreds of years of their history, there's again and again, they're supposed to come back to the Scripture. They've got all these feasts that are supposed to remind them of what God did in the Exodus, of what He did when they crossed the Jordan. Of, there's so many things they do in their calendar that they're supposed to remember. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing then for God to say, remember not the former things. And what he's mentioning is he's already mentioned a handful of those former things right here. This may have brought to mind the, the move out of Egypt. And I think that was his intention. Depending on which uh, Bible translation you use, some of them are even more clear on the fact that he's speaking of bringing them up out of Egypt. And this idea you'll see there in verse 17, it says he brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the warrior, and they're extinguished. He's made a way through the ocean. So this is Moses. This is Moses and the people crossing the Red Sea, and he extinguishes them by dumping the Red Sea on their heads. That's the idea of what God is saying here. And right after that, he says, remember not the former things. So something unique's going on here in Isaiah. Something different than what he's been saying. And I think it's this. And to me, this one really helped me. The former things are those wonderful things God has done that we have a temptation to just be stuck in. I think there's a difference here between remembering what God has done and believing that God is done. And I think that's where we get stuck. We look back at our past and we say, look at the miracles. Look at the wonders that God has done. I have a hard time imagining that he would do more. I become stuck in the past. I, just, I constantly live in what I might call my glory days. And I can't imagine a better future that God is doing a new thing. That's what he's saying to the people of Israel here. Don't be stuck back here constantly thinking, well, God, look what God has done. And look what he, look what he did in the past. But I... I can't see that he's doing anything in my future. He says, no, remember not those things. If that's how you're going to live, put that stuff aside. Look, I'm doing something new. I want you to see that I'm a God who is and not a God who was. Not merely a God who was. I'm a God who is. Have you ever met a person that's stuck in the past? You ever met that person? If you haven't, I don't know. I, I, they're everywhere. I, I meet them quite a lot, like the Uncle Ricos from Napoleon Dynamite. Like they're, they're, they're around, and, and all they ever want to talk about is how wonderful high school was. 
You ever met those friends from high school who are still in high school somehow, mentally? It's mind-boggling. They still go out and party just like they were in the 12th grade, except then it was dangerous and interesting because you weren't supposed to be. Now you're 40. It's not that... Yeah, it's completely legal what you're doing, and it's just silly. And you... Maybe this is you today. I don't mean that as a discouragement, but rather as an encouragement that God has not done. We don't have to remain in those so-called glory days because the glory days have yet to come. Heaven is not here yet. In fact, our best days are guaranteed have not come yet. I promise you this. Scripture is clear about it. And so this is wonderful news. We don't have to be stuck in the past. We don't have to constantly say, well, I guess God is done with me. No, the wonders he's done only point to the fact that he is, he is continuing and doing more. I hope this helps you today. As you look back on this past year or maybe past years, whether they were good, bad, that you would say, you know, I know God was up to miraculous things there. And some of those things that really hurt, God must not be done. There's some relationships, there's some heartache that God's got a future destination. And I don't see it yet, but I'm believing it. And I'm looking at my past in a different way. He goes on to say in verse 18, what seems to be the exact same thing. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Now, is God redundant? I think not. I think maybe, maybe you might argue he's just trying to drive home the point. But he used completely different language. The things of old here is the Hebrew word kadmoni, which means the past, the old, the old stuff. Like this is, has a sense of like that stuff that lingers around. So I really think he's saying something different in these two lines. He's first saying, I don't want you to be stuck in the past and only ever consider what I've done for you in the past. That God is... Only something who was and not is. He says that first. But then the second thing is, I don't, I don't want you to consider that old baggage. So he has another word for Israel and now for us. Don't be stuck in your shame. Don't be stuck in the past in that way. In that you can't get over the hump and thinking that, well, my sin, my shame, my guilt, whatever it is I've done has derailed my faith walk. No. No, God is not done there. No, he's only begun. The things of old here, this sounds, this sounds like he's saying, I don't want you to live in your guilt and your shame. Stop living in the past. Stop dwelling on the past pain. Because what? Because your glory days have yet to come. Your greatest pains perhaps are in your past. And if not, regardless, God is doing a new thing and he is walking with you. There's this other passage in Isaiah, which I didn't put in my notes, but it's the idea that he is both going before us and he's our rear guard. I think it's Isaiah 53, somewhere in the 50s there. And he says, I'm your rear guard. That is a wonderful thing to think about. That God, not only are we following him to some destination where he is leading us, but also he is protecting us. From the things that would creep in and scare us all over again. And, and there's, if you're anything like me, and I, I know we're all, we're all in this camp together. This human walk where we've made mistakes. And for each of us, there's like unique, there's unique things we really struggle with. The way I struggle is, is different than you. But the manner of that struggle is similar. That there's certain sin areas, there's certain things that creep back in on me. And they creep back out on you. Maybe you've had a struggle with addiction. Maybe you've had a struggle with your tongue in the past where you, 
you lied or you gossiped. And, and those old wounds come back. Maybe you had a struggle in some relationship, something physical. I don't know. And those things that you've struggled with for a while, they like to come back in to which God says, I'm your rear guard. And I'm redefining that. I want you to look at that different. I want you to see what God is doing. I want you to see where I'm moving. A couple of scriptures here for you to remind you of that, first of all. Because I think we, can, we should never tire of the fact that God has wholly and fully cleansed us of our sin. That he holds it no, no longer against us. We shouldn't get tired of that, that reminder. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Don't you realize that those who do, do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, worship idols, commit adultery... Male prostitutes practice homosexuality, are thieves, are greedy people, are drunkards, are abusive, or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, you're thinking, all right, that one didn't help me too much yet. But he goes on to write, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I would argue all of us were like that in some capacity. There's some nuance of those things that we've struggled with. I would argue probably every single one of us has worshipped an idol. It may not be a graven image. It may not be something we hid in our rooms or worshipped ancestors. We are a nation of idolatry. It's very obvious to most of us. And so I would say myself included. If nothing else, that one gets me. To which God says, you were made holy. Cleansed purified, made right, that is fantastic news. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That is how much He has distanced us, distanced our sin from us and cleansed us. We should not forget that. When He says, don't consider the former things, the, the old baggage, because look what I've done. I took it and I tossed it to the other side of the earth. Don't bring that stuff back up. I'm your rear guard. Look at it different. See it as I see it. And then he's pressing on in new ways. In Philippians 3, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said he had to do. And we should, we should live similarly because here's a guy who was a part of murdering Christians. Here's a guy who has a, a dreadful past. Most of us don't have that kind of weight on our shoulders. And to that he says, I don't look back there. I trust that God is protecting me. I'm straining forward to the call that he's, he's, he's bringing me, this upward call in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, I don't, I don't care what you've been through. God's not done with you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. There'll be hills and valleys. I can promise you that. Jesus makes that promise to his disciples. He said, look, if they call me Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to call you? There's going to be battles. But know this, I've got your back and I'm walking ahead of you. Praise God. And that's right living. That's a, that's a life that has purpose. This is why Jesus constantly takes what we were, perhaps what, what we thought we were, and changes that. This is why so often Jesus has a habit of changing people's names. If you look biblically, there's so often he likes to change their names to mean almost the polar opposite of what it was. Saul to Paul. 
And while he'll he'll go to a group of fishermen who are the kind of guys who are not well-learned, the kind of guys who are very used to just handling stinky fish all the time and not dealing with people so much, he goes to them and says, I know you've been fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He does that over and over and over again. He did it in my life. He's doing it in yours. He's going to take the things that seem irrelevant or even painful and shift them for his glory. If you'll give them to him and lay them at his feet. Can you trust God with your past? He's indeed, he's already dealt with the former things. The things you're ashamed of, he's already paid and dealt for them. They are hung on the cross. They are as far as the east is from the west. It is done, my friends. And not only that, the things he has done, your brightest moments in your life, They're yet to come. I hope you can believe that with me. This is the word he gives to the Israelites who had seen fascinating miracles. To that he says, I'm doing a new thing. Now I think we must admit he's pointing to something. That the thing he's going to do in some hundreds of years later is Christ Jesus. For all of the wonder of the Exodus and all of the wonder of the many miracles God did for the nation of Israel, nothing is more wonderful than the Son. Nothing more wonderful than Christ Jesus. He says, I'm doing a new thing. And now look what he's done. The mystery of the church. That people of different cultures, of different races, of different backgrounds, no matter where you come from, that Jesus has saved us all. That is an an amazing thing. A A miraculous thing. Here's the second reason to be encouraged. First, of course, he redefines our past. Second, he renews our perspective. He renews our perspective. Now, you'll notice I made these easy on y'all again. I really try to help you. I give you these devices so you might remember. All these points are RP. Redefines our past, renews our perspective. Look at verse 19. This is where I got this point. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do, your, do you perceive it? He says in verse 19. Perspective. What is your perception? <laughs> Did you know God might be doing a new thing? He's been doing a new thing in your life. Maybe mighty, miraculous things in your life, but you have not perceived it. That must be possible, otherwise God wouldn't give this this example. This must be possible, otherwise God wouldn't have come out and said, Behold, listen up, I'm doing a new thing. This is the Hebrew word hadas, which means fresh. It means a new thing. I'm doing something it's not going to look like before. God just, for whatever reason, I think it's his creativity. I think it's just who he is. He's not one to do encores typically. God likes to do something fresh. Spring up something new. In fact, this is the very illustration he's using just in these words. He says it springs forth. He uses the word hadas on purpose because it's the idea that a new seed is sprouting. And I want you to see it. I think he's using this illustration, in fact, because when you plant seed, and most of us have done this, right? You plant a seed, it's a while before you see it do anything. In fact, you might not notice when it first starts springing up, and then all of a sudden there's life, and then before you know it, there's fruit. And He says, look, keep your eyes open. I'm up to something. Do you perceive it? This is really the key word of this second reason is perception. This word here means to perceive, to see, to know, to have new and fresh perspective. Do you you see as God sees? God is giving fresh sight. He's giving fresh vision. 
We've been looking at a situation perhaps in our lives as, as like a complete loss. Maybe we've looked at it and said, this person is gone. They're lost. They're not returning to the fold. We're looking at this job and saying, that was a complete wash. Why did I ever do that? We look at this season of our life and go, God, why did my marriage fail? Why did I go through that? What, is, what was the point of that heartache? And we look at that and we wonder. And yet to that, God says, look, something is springing forth. Do you perceive it? And I see, I see your past, I see your future differently than you do. This is why, and I could have used many different scriptures, but this one came to my mind. This is why in Samuel, he instructs Samuel this very way. For Samuel 17, he says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the, Lord's, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When he's going to pick the new king and it's baby David, little guy's not even in the room. God says, you're not seeing what I'm seeing because I see past the exterior. And that's really, that's really important for us in our Christian walk. Not just in the way we visualize people, but also the way that we see pain. The way that we see situations. The way that we even see our joys. That we wouldn't look too deeply at those and go, well, look what I've done. And begin to puff up and think, I did something great. Rather than see all of these things as God is at work. He's doing something new. He's springing forth. And we can know God's thoughts. We can know where he's at work. This is something I think so many believers miss. For whatever reason, we think God is trying to hide from us. That his perspective is something he's withholding. And yet there's many scriptures I could go to, but one that came to mind is 1 Corinthians 2 where he says, Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things for we have the mind of Christ. It's one of the many gifts of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the very gift to be able to read his word and go, Okay, I understand not every detail, but I understand what you're up to here, God. And, and constantly he's teaching me something fresh. Something new in his word. This, in fact, is the mind of Christ. That I can look at situations and see them the way he sees them. I was sitting this week, and I would encourage you guys to be in prayer for Rich and Lynette. Rich is, I don't know if he's still in the hospital today. I haven't checked in today. Maybe someone knows, but um, I went and saw him a day or so ago. And he's got pneumonia on top of, he's been, you know, he's got a really, really aggressive cancer that I think most of you know. We've been praying for him as a church. But got pneumonia right now, having trouble breathing. His oxygen's really low. And, but he's in clear mind, and he's, uh, he's boldly and strong, as strong as he can facing this thing, right? And we're having this conversation, and it's a conversation that is kind of sticking with me, something I'm still wrestling with, and that is we all, we all suffer, right? Humanity because of the fall, because of sin, which has entered the world, there's this thing called death. We understand that. We hate it. We hate pain. We, we hate sickness. We hate all of that stuff. And so does God. It was not his plan, but rather sin entered the world and he has allowed it, right? For what reason? Okay. What is the purpose? Why is it that we as Christians can face this differently? So as I'm thinking about that and talking with Rich and Lynette and, and other people along this journey, it's, it's not that God trusts Christians with more pain. It's like we're all trusted with pain. 
all people. But what's different is how we handle it. And, and, and that there's these opportunities. There's opportunities in the, in the hospital. There's opportunities in these relationships that we would bear this differently. That there's a hope that the world doesn't understand. There's a hope that we can have in the midst of great pain that the world doesn't get. That's the mind of Christ. Now, I know that may not be super encouraging to you. Maybe some of you have come in here today and you're dealing with some broken things, broken relationships. Maybe you've got your own personal physical pain. There's pain. There's suffering in this world that we all experience, Christian and non-Christian alike. What's different about you and I is we have the mind of Christ. And it causes us, and something I was so proud of my family for over the last few months, when I lost a family member, someone dear to me, The way that we were able to approach that, I thought, glorified the Father. The way that we were able to almost bear witness at his funeral. That's different. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud that that's who God is in my life. And it's who he has always been. It's about perspective. That we would look at our joys and our pains through God's eyes and see where he's on the move. And he's already doing it. He's already doing a new thing. It made me think this week, this week about this, this idea of seeing in general. And this is something I had, I had remembered from biology. I've always been fascinated just by the intricacies of human life and, and, and life in general. That things are just so magnificent. I've never really doubted that God was creator. Now maybe that's because I come with a bias. But when I look at things, I see... Not just intelligent design, like the most amazing intelligent design. There must be a creator. There must be, because just, and pop this image up for me uh, really quick of the, of the human eye. Actually, you know what? I didn't load it. Sorry. I'm just going to I'm gonna have to speak about it. There it is. Yeah, imagine it. Um, look, look to your neighbor's eye. There you go. You can look left or right. Um, the human eye is a fascinating thing, and it's an amazing thing. There's... All these different parts in your eyes that have to work together in order for you to see. And it's, it's minute stuff. The light, first of all, there has to be light. I don't think anybody got the ability to see in the dark. You have a superpower if you do, or you're half cat or something. But um, humans don't have that skill. So we have to have light that passes through. It passes first through the cornea, which is shaped like a dome. Why? So that it can properly bend the light to hit the back of the eye at the retina. It, it causes the light to bend. That, some of that light passes through an opening called the pupil. And then the iris, the colored part, controls just how much light comes in. Next, that light passes through the lens so that we can focus that light correctly towards the retina in the back. And then once it hits the retina, the light-sensitive little piece of tissue at the very back of your eye, Special cells then called photoreceptors turn that light into electrical signals that pass through your optical nerve to your brain. Now, when I, when I read that out to you, you go, wow, I'm so happy I'm not still in school. Perhaps I don't know where you're at on that. But, but if you're anything like me, you're thinking, wow, there's a lot of steps just in order for me to get a clear picture. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. It's surprising more of us aren't blind. It's surprising more of us... It can't see much, right? Because all of those things, those details have to be just right. And if there's no light in the room, which some of us are struggling with in life, we, we're walking in darkness and we wonder why we can't see as God sees. He's the light. 
Or there's all these other problems in our perspective where perhaps we're seeing what God's up to, but for whatever reason, when it gets to our brain, we're misinterpreting it. It comes through our optic nerve, our perspective nerve, if there were such a thing, and enters our brain and we go, oh, that's just dark. That's just bad. I don't see how God could be at work in that rather than see as he sees. This is true of our perspective, that a lot of things have to go correctly for us to see as God sees. I'm convinced that even in my greatest sufferings, the things that I struggle with most, those depressed states I get in, it's often a misfire in my perspective. That even when I've lost jobs, things in my past that I thought, man, I don't see how God was in that. Five years later, ten years later, I see God was definitely there. I have no doubt now. Some of you know this story. I I probably shouldn't share it. It discredits me, really. But I've been fired from being a pastor before. Y'all can walk out if you want to. Most of you know this, right? In fact, I was only there for one year. It was in Greenville. I took an associate pastor job. It didn't work out. There was different uh, insight uh, about how we should do church. We didn't see eye to eye. And one or two of the three pastors were fired within a week. I was one of those. And I almost started selling life insurance for a little while, church. I hated that job. If you do that, praise God for you. Um, But now here I am. God led me back. But I looked at that for months, almost years, and thought, I don't see what the point of that was. I don't get why God caused me that pain. Why he almost, It almost derailed me from ministry entirely. Because I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over my failure. Right? And yet now I look at it as the complete opposite. Because I know I wouldn't be here right now if God didn't make sure I get fired. Because I would probably still be lingering there. I didn't know how to let go. Or how to move on. God's done some stuff like that in your life. I guarantee you. You've lost jobs, you've lost something, and you look back at it now and go, okay, God had to like, this is, this is this crazy tale of God and what He does, this new thing He's doing. He did it in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., one of the worst events in the, in the history of the Jewish nation. 70 A.D., they siege Jerusalem, they tear down the walls, they destroy most of the Temple Mount, and the, the Israelites and the Christians alike are scattered. Over a million people die. And you look at that and go, what? God was clearly taking vacation that day. And yet when you look back in time at that from a different perspective, you see the scattering of God's people meant the spreading of the gospel. And the people weren't going to do it. They were too comfortable. They were too happy in the city. God had already told them, go out, go out, go out. Constantly be missional. And they were lingering. That's a weird way to think, isn't it? That God would allow something like that for his gospel? I'm confident he will. I'm confident that he cares more about the lost and cares more about those coming to salvation and cares more also about my character than he does my comfort all the time. That was some dark thinking there, Jonathan. I know, I know. You can, it's a new year, y'all. It's going to be a good one. And over the next few weeks, we're going to introduce a series called Renovation of the Heart. And this idea that I'm renovating my house right now, which is a complete mess, y'all. This is just the, y'all have done this before. It is awful, uh, but but, but we're doing it for a greater outcome, right? We live in discomfort so that things will improve. And 
over the next few weeks, this is where we're going to spend time of what it would look like for, to really let God in and start shaping and molding us. And that leads me to my third point, my third reason, really, is that God reshapes our purpose. This is how he ends this note. This is how he ends this piece of scripture. By saying some things that are confusing, to be honest with you. Verses 20 and 21, you're like, where do the jackals and ostriches come from? Don't worry, baby ducks. I don't leave anything undealt with here, all right? I want to know too. As I'm reading, it reminds me of of one of my seminary professors who said, don't leave any rock unturned, all right? Look at all of them. Why is ostriches in this text? This is odd. Wild beasts, wild jackals. This is, this is the sense of untamed, wild, unbridled creatures. I think there's some people nowadays that might ride an ostrich, but it's pretty rare, right? But when, when God is talking to the nation of Israel, He's saying, these are those things out there that will never obey man. They're untamed. Wild jackals, ostriches. In fact, the King James, if you've brought the King James Version in today, it's even more fascinating. It takes the word, the Hebrew word there is tanin, and it translates it dragon. So in the King James, it says wild dragons, untamed beasts. It's like no matter how you translate these verses, the sense of it is the creatures of your most wild imagination, they honor God. The things that, whatever you can imagine that would be the most dangerous, untamable animal, maybe dinosaurs come to mind, some kind of velociraptor from Jurassic Park, that can come to your mind. Those things honor God. All of creation honors Him. Another commentator looking at this text says it has something to do with the nations outside of Israel as well. That the wild beasts, the jackals, those things that are outside of of the people of God, they will also be grafted in. That they too will honor God. Well, we certainly see that now in Christ Jesus, that the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish faith, have now been grafted in. Perhaps that's true. They will honor me. What's the point of all that? That he would say in verse 21, this statement, that's true for us. That the people, verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself might declare my praise. Now, I don't want to get into like a bunch of deep theology as I'm trying to close this thing down, but the idea that he says might praise me is fascinating to me. That I don't see any any nuance here that God forces us into worship. There seems to be a sense of free will here. You chase that rabbit this week, have a good time. But there seems to be a notion here that God gives us the opportunity for worship. We have to choose it. He gives us the opportunity to praise. The people who I've formed for myself might declare my praise. This is our ultimate purpose. That that the thing we have to come back to, if we're going to understand what it means to walk with Christ in 2023, we need to start understanding worship. Because it's it. If we were going to go back and do like a, a beginning of getting back to origins, getting back to who we really are as human beings, who we're really supposed to be in our base, most basic function, it is worship. That sure, he shaped each of us different. He called, to, he called me to preach. I barely moved then and just went, that was wild. Some of us he calls to use, called to use our hands in some way, our minds in different ways. We work 
and many different capacities throughout our city and surrounding cities. And God has uniquely designed us for those things. But the thing that we're consistently the same in is he made us to worship. We do it with what we do with our work, sure. We do it with our lips and praise. We do it with our hearts. We do it with the way we live. God has made us for worship. If we go back to Genesis, go all the way to Revelation, it is the story of the Bible. A people who God created that they might declare His praise. This, I'm wrestling with this now and trying to understand how does this reshape my purpose this year. And I want to encourage you with that. I want to give that to you this morning. How, how should my worship grow this year? How should it change? Where is it lacking? What in the world? I'm... Hold tight. That hasn't happened in weeks, months, really. Must be a good message. Y'all getting this? Either that or the Lord's trying to shut me down early. <clears throat> I'm convinced that if I really want to understand my purpose, it, it's going to look more and more like understanding how to worship God and to really fulfill that aspect that, that He's designed me for most. That is my, how does He reshape my purpose? He takes those things that are far off, those wild, untamed things, and He causes them to honor Him. He's doing that in my past. He's doing that in my present. He's doing that in my future so that I might see Him at work in all of these things and I might fall to my face in praise. That's what he's up to. In fact, there's many places I could go. Ephesians chapter 2 being one of them where it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his very clay. He's the potter. And he made us to... I'm about to move to a mic here in a minute. Check. He made us for his own glory that we might worship him. Revelation 4 it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. This is what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is what he's hunting for. This is what he's looking for. People who would worship him in spirit and truth. Let me end with this thought. I'm convinced that the best employees, the best, certainly the best soldiers when I was in the army, have a family to support. Think about this for just a moment. And if, if you're single today, this isn't the shot over the bow to say, hey, you're terrible at your job. That's not what I'm saying. However, I have noticed something both when I was in the secular world working and also when I was in the army, that the people who had people that they were supporting took their work more seriously on average. You've probably noticed this, right? And so I think Christ can make all the difference there. If you're a single person without a family, he makes all the difference if you understand well that you're working for him. And that makes your work even more valuable. But I noticed even those who didn't follow Christ, if they had a wife, they had a husband, they had kids that they're supporting, they don't want to lose this job. They want to do it right. They've got people to support. And it makes for better soldiers. Some of the best soldiers I had had something to fight for. And that's what I thought of this week. It's like, if I want to follow Christ, 
I need to understand what I'm fighting for. If I want to live a life that's devoted to him, what does that look like? Well, then I have to put my purpose where it belongs. My purpose is his glory. My purpose is worshiping him and lifting his name high. That begins to shape the way I speak, the way I even drive, the way I work, the way I encourage you guys, the way I have compassion. All of these things are worship. God's redefining your past, my friends. He says, remember not the former things. Don't consider the old stuff. Look, look intently for what he's already doing in your life and where he's moving that you might have full worship in your life. Reshaped purpose. Understanding that God is doing something miraculous and you, like me and like the apostles and disciples of old, fall on your face in praise. Because he is a mighty God who's doing wonderful things. Are y'all ready for 2023? I know he's up to something. I don't know what he's going to do in our church. But I'm praying this, and I hope you'll join me in prayer. That God would bring the lost to himself in this city. I pray this, I'm sure, all the time. But I'm uniquely praying it afresh right now. God, you say in your word you're doing a new thing. I know you desire people to come to salvation. And I pray, God, would you use our church? Would you use Eastgate? Would you use the churches in town that are preaching the gospel? I will be so thankful to hear this year that every every Christ-centered church in town is growing. I long for that. I long for that. Would you pray with me that that very thing in your personal prayer? Let's let's start now in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we, we ask, we boldly ask, that you would do the things you said you, you, you're doing and are, are going to do. We, we boldly ask that of you. Speaking out of your word, where it says in the New Testament, it says that God desires that no men would, would be lost, but that all men would be saved. God, if that's true, God, and I believe it is, would you use us personally? First of all, personally. Give me opportunities in my, in my personal life to share the gospel. Give me opportunities in my personal walk to minister to others. That for whatever reason, the next waiter or waitress I speak with, the next person I bump into, that they, they would have the kingdom in their eyes. That you would make it clear to me that this is an opportunity. Would you do that in each and every one of us? Give us personal stories of where you're moving. Whether it's with coworkers, with family members, maybe some of those people we've considered long shots in our life. A father, a brother, a, a sister, someone who's just far from you, it seems, God. Would you give us opportunities this week, this year? And God, would you rescue people? I know we can't do it. I fully understand that. I know that there's nothing in my power that can change that. And yet, God, you can. You can rescue. You've already sent a Savior. Now would you, would you stir hearts? God, would you do that in our church? I pray that, that, that in this place we would, we would preach Christ crucified and we would honor him. That we would be the kind of people who are serious about the gospel. Would you do that in us? That we would look at our purpose and say, at the end of the day, I know who I am. I am a worshiper. Yes, I'm a father. Yes, I'm a, a, a husband. Yes, I'm a wife. Yes, I'm a spouse. Yes, I'm a person who works here or there. But God, at the end of the day, the thing I am most is a worshiper. And God, help me to live out that, that calling. That purpose above all else. God, would you bring the lost into this place? I pray boldly for some miracles this year. 
I want to see, I want to see you save a ton of people in this city this year, Lord. I want to see people getting baptized and walking with Christ. Would you do revival in this place? And if it's your will, God, let it start with us as individuals and in this very church. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.